Hello everyone, welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. I think that, you know, as I reflect back on um, the last uh, approximately seven months, I guess it is, maybe eight, um, and thinking back to when ChatGPT was dropped, um, it seems like artificial intelligence really took over much of the conversation going on uh, by faculty uh, and administrators trying to think about how that's going to impact uh, teaching and learning in the classroom. And I think that's an important reflection. We should always think about how new technologies um, are going to have positive or negative effects. In this episode, we have an interesting opportunity to talk to an individual who is thinking about that intersection, but in a way that you may not think about it. It's not about how how AI can be used for uh, maybe uh, students doing assignments a little bit easier than they should. It's really more about how technology might be facilitative of creating a more global perspective. I think that's a view that really hasn't been much part of the conversation, so I'm really excited about this interview. Dana Mortensen is the CEO and co-founder of the education nonprofit World Savvy. Based in Minnesota, World Savvy works with K-12 educators to promote global competence by engaging students to become responsible global citizens. Their program based on co-created inclusivity aims to reach 10% of public schools by 2035. As an organization, World Savvy has been named one of the top education innovators worldwide, and Dana herself was identified as one of the top 50 women leaders in Minnesota, among numerous other accolades for the work that she's been doing. Dana, thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you so much for having me. So I, I do want to talk about AI um, as our conversation continues, uh, but before we do that, I think it's really important for us to understand how World Savvy sort of positions itself as as an as as an organization that is aiming towards global competence um, among students. And so, can we start by having you talk about what your perspective on global competence is? In other words, you know, what does that phrase mean, and and really, why do you think it's so important right now? that that be a focal point for an organization like yours? Great. Um, well, World Savvy, I mean, really what we're aiming to do is to create a more equitable, inclusive, and future-ready K-12 education system where, you know, we know that it was predominantly designed in, in an industrialized era in a more standardized way, you know, to prepare young people for a world that was more standardized, and that's not mm -hmm. the reality that we live in, and it hasn't been for quite a long time. And the, the way that we do that is to embed global competence into teaching, learning, and culture in K-12. Um, we think of global competence as the disposition and capacity to understand and act on issues of global significance and also local significance. Um, but really, it's the skills and dispositions that we think all graduates need to thrive in a world that's more interconnected, complex, um, and interdependent. So mm -hmm. we spent a long time, we built a matrix to try and define and understand what that looks like, what the core concepts, behaviors, values, attitudes, and skills are, and what it's rooted in. Um, you know, the core concepts of it are really kind of four, four pillars. One is that we're connected, that the default understanding of the world is that global issues and local issues are complex and they're interdependent, mm -hmm. and that we know that to be true. The second is that our stories matter, so that who we are, our identity, our culture, our history, it's key to understanding not just ourselves, but our relationship to community and the rest of the world. Um, that it's complex, that multiple conditions are affecting diverse forces, events, conditions, and issues. We, we try, we live in a society that tries to simplify and oftentimes make things binary, right and wrong, but in reality, mm -hmm. that's not the way the world is. 
and that history matters, that our current world system is shaped by historical forces. So that's sort of the underpinning of it. And then we spend time walking through um, the behaviors, attitudes, skills that help a young person navigate what is a constantly changing world and will continue to be, is now and will be into the future. Um, some people call that sort of a VUCA world, uh, um, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's that's really antithetical to how a K-12 system was designed to prepare young people. Um, and so we've spent the last 21 years um, partnering with schools and districts to try and reimagine what that learning experience would look like if global competence was at the core. Um, so how that works for World Savvy is that we partner with whole schools and districts to do a few things. One, to focus on the student learning experience, to ensure that it's student-centered and that student voice and choice and the capacity for them to drive their own learning around mm -hmm. issues of consequences at the center. Um, the second is really looking at educators and helping to support uh, pedagogy that actually creates classroom practices and discourse that encourages and embeds global competence and also finds ways to assess it. Um, and then, you know, the third level of that is that we're, we're doing work with school leaders. So mm -hmm. we have leadership cohorts that help leaders who want to think about inclusive, equitable and future ready schools from the vision standpoint, think about how to operationalize that. This is really complex work. It's hard to do. I mean, you know, deeply the K-12 system is and you've got an average tenure of 2.9 years for superintendents, I think it is at this point. Um, there's a lot of change, there's a lot of complexities, there are a lot of um, variables that folks are managing inside those systems. And so mm -hmm. we try to essentially make global competence the core so that it's easier for schools to manage change of all kinds, um, internally and externally. What I there, there are two phrases that came up multiple times in what you just said. One is that you know change is, is happening and that global competence is connected to that. Can you kind of tease that out a little bit more about why you think that global competence is one of the key drivers or perhaps key skills um, that is connected to the change that we're witnessing in our culture? Yeah, so one of the values and attitudes, and, and you know, if you go to our website, you can find our matrix about how we define this. But one of the values and attitudes that we single out as a part of global competence is finds comfort with ambiguity in unfamiliar situations. And I think mm -hmm. if you think about that phrase, it's really not how we're wired, generally, um, humans, and it's not how we set up a lot of systems. There's a lot more rigidity, particularly in K-12, um, than there is in the world. And so when we mm -hmm. think about embedding that, into learning experiences to contribute to lifelong learning for young people and essentially to, to look at what, what does real preparation constitute for a world that we can't predict, um, that's a really important value and attitude. And so what we work with schools to do is to say, all right, at the basic level, you know, let's say you can complete tasks with step-by-step -step directions and you're willing to learn about new or unfamiliar experiences. And we'll help an educator or a school scaffold that up to you know, it's most complex iteration. You're curious and flexible in the face of a complex task. You can self-start and use resources to navigate new situations. You seek out learning and resources to approach it. Um, complex problem solving in the face of change. Again, K-12 hasn't been set up for that. And if you think mm -hmm. about the challenges that we're facing in the world, whether that's hyper-local or global, health, poverty, climate change, that's essential uh, because this is all of these things are a moving target and the ability for young people and all of us to do that to navigate ambiguity and change with ease and with skill um, is going to be critical mm -hmm. one of the approaches that i i learned about um 
as part of your program on your website is called Knowledge to Action Projects. Can you talk about that philosophy and, and how that gets enacted and maybe some examples of how that's played out in classrooms or, or even entire school districts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, knowledge to Action is a core pillar of our educational approach. So in addition to cultivating connections and looking at active interdisciplinary learning that embeds inquiry and reflection and adaptation in an ongoing way, knowledge to action is a core pillar. We really believe that, and you've, I mean, you've talked about this quite a bit in past podcasts, that mm -hmm. student engagement is key to success. It's key for any of us who are learners to really deeply, if you're deeply engaged with material, it's going to impact you as a learner in a way that is durable. And so knowledge to action is our essentially framework for young people to have an opportunity to pick issues they're passionate about that they see in their community and the world that care about and they'd like to make a difference and they'd like to impact and to in school develop models that they can do that so um, the knowledge to action model we have um, it's embedded across an entire school year but is also has signature experiences we do mm -hmm. day-long knowledge to action um, experiences where young people pick an issue, they learn deeply about it, they empathize through uh, proximate stakeholders who are engaged with that issue, and then they, they prototype solutions. So I'll give a, a, couple, of, a couple of examples. Um, we, we worked on the Knowledge to Action framework in rural Tennessee with a, a number of middle schools and high schools that came together. And across a region, they had decided that the issue this was 2018 that they cared most about um, was environmental degradation and climate. And so students in that area, basically we collected survey data. They told us a lot about what, what they were concerned about. We developed a design question. How might we as young people take action on environmental issues in, in our local community and brought them together and worked through, we call this our K-to-A process, which is a hybrid of a design thinking process really and, mm -hmm. and project-based learning. Um, and allowed students to then move through this deep learning process, hear from community experts, literally experts. And I stress that because I think um, one of the things World Savvy tries to do is sort of break down the walls between school and community so that students mm -hmm. see and understand um, the myriad resources that exist around them. You don't need to pipe in someone from the UN to talk about an SDG if there are people right there in your community taking action on it. So. We um, engage them with community experts, little e, that are that are doing work in this area, and then they spent the afternoon prototyping solutions. So, everything from uh, you know a prototype for a, a filter that could go on the. Uh, the front of boats in the Tennessee River that could pick up microbial plastic. The Tennessee River hmm. is one of the most polluted bodies of water in the country. Um, there's no, there's not a comprehensive recycling program in that area of East Tennessee, and so students created an app where they could ride share to recycling centers in other parts mm -hmm. of Tennessee. Um, they, you know, worked on school gardens and vertical farms all kinds of ideas that were generated from the learning in that day that they wanted to take back some to their sort of hyper-local school community um, and begin with a garden there and others that they had, you know, the impetus to go out and develop as something that they wanted to see take root in the world. It's also embodied, you know, that's applied, knowledge to action applied to a very specific community issue. We also use knowledge to action to just flex this muscle of what does it mean to deeply learn about an issue and take informed action. I think it's pretty critical in, in the era that we're living in now where we're awash with so much information and literally <laughs> the ability to discern what's, mm -hmm. what's fact, what's fiction is in and of itself is a huge part of building global competence. But even in the sense of how do you use your voice once you become informed to advocate, mm -hmm. to create change and to do it in a way that really um, 
you know, meets, meets the needs of those who are closest to the issue. So one school in New York actually used the K-2A process to, to bring in high school students uh, as partners in trying to design the master schedule. You know, they had paid tens of thousands of dollars for a consultant to come in and build a master schedule that would work for the school and realized three quarters of the way through that they hadn't actually asked students anything about mm -hmm. it. And so older students led a knowledge to action experience for a day with younger students to, to contemplate how might we build a master schedule that allows us to do, you know, in, to create an inclusive, equitable, future ready school environment and learning experience. So we apply it in lots of different ways, um, sort of inside schools across a year as an as a launch activity for schools to sort of dip a toe into what it looks like to center student voice and to get mm -hmm. them engaged in things in community that have meaning. Um, because again, there's a lot of studies that tell us that disengagement from sort of traditional K-12 learning is is at an all-time high. And so this is these are ways to make learning relevant um, to young people through their own lens. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this is kind of a side note connection related to this. I, I noticed in your background in, in you know, not uh, a few years back and, and then your organization currently has somewhat of an emphasis on um, the use of media and music and, and that, that sort of artistic space. How, how does that, uh, are there examples of how that's played a role in um, one of these projects uh, where digital media or artistic representation um, of issues has become sort of a focal point for students. Absolutely. Yeah. For many years, we ran a media and arts program that then was sort mm -hmm. of, um, and that was kind of a separate program that was then uh, literally brought in and kind of consolidated into these whole school and district partnerships because the arts play a really incredibly critical role in allowing students to access voice and express themselves and their perspectives. And we want mm -hmm. myriad ways for young people to be able to do that. So in the school context, it's been really interesting to see how that's applied. Here in Minneapolis, we have a partner school, a K-8 school, and these global competencies are embedded very deeply into the learning experience. And one of the ways that they do that um, is, you know, they're integrating student-directed inquiry into the classroom. And one group of students created an inquiry project or K2A that they called a community ambassadors program. Uh, it was linked to another competency that was adopting shared responsibility and taking collaborative action. So they they basically were, were concerned about climate and safety in the hallways. They were loud, they were disruptive, yeah. um, and they wanted to work together to problem solve on how to bring the second floor community. So this group of fifth graders, that's where they were located. Um, and not, not just to keep it clean, but to look out for each other, to keep it safe, to feel protected and respected, and to cultivate a sense of belonging. That was their stated goal. And so, you know, in order to do that, they did a variety of things. They did teacher outreach and classroom visits and surveys, but they also, they created a logo and an art campaign yeah. and they branded it. They coordinated mm -hmm. an art campaign where they decorated the hallways. Then they created a series of videos modeling the desired hallway behavior. Um, and they reached out to the student leadership team to create buy-in and support for the process and shared this media out to create a more collective understanding of what they were looking to achieve. Um, and mm -hmm. it worked. I went to see sort of at the end, um, you know, they had developed even using a fist to five sort of, you know, um, zero being this is a moment of no talking, five being you can, you know, use an outside voice code for everybody moving through the halls. And the, literally the culture was completely reshaped 
um, on that floor and as a part of that school community. So that's an example of kind of how this, what this looks like when it's embedded kind of deeply into the day-to-day led by students inside mm-hmm. a school community. Yeah, interesting. Um, when, when you were talking about the multiple examples of the um, K2A projects, I, I'm going to infer that many of these, you know, have local connections, but they also connect to broader, you know, issues, uh, you know, climate change and environmental degradation locally, um, both being connected in some level. So, and and I've noticed that similar, you know, approach that uh, in, in many of the classes that we teach in higher ed here at Ohio University that are locally based, problem-based classes, similar things. There there are local issues that connect to broader, uh, perhaps more global, certainly national concerns. When, when those projects start, um, they tend to be problem-focused, and mm-hmm. as a result, um, the people that are engaged, whether it be the students, the experts that you're engaging, the local leadership that you're engaging, the teachers, et cetera, they tend to start in a, what I would call a deficit-based yeah. model. We have a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hurting people, perhaps. Uh, and then there's a transition to where they start thinking about assets. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen that you know, over multiple. What, what do you think? How do, how do you think... Um, people that are engaging in this type of problem-based work that try to tackle meaty issues that are really important, how do they facilitate that transition and dialogue? Because my experience is if that transition doesn't take place, it can be a real bummer, right? You're focusing on negatives rather than positives. And so what are some ways that you would coach um, either teachers or just groups of people working on problems like this to transition to that asset-based perspective? Yeah, it's such a good point. I mean, not only not only is it harder to make that transition if you start from a place where it's it's in, you know the problematization is that negative aspect is focused on but it's also quite depressing for young people yeah. to step in one of my favorite um, this is a shout out for one of our partners um, if you've ever come across the solutions journalism network yeah. um, they actually do a lot of work um, in the higher ed space but it's a great example of how you select the resources and the media that you use to introduce conversation about um, issues that you want to focus on is is a really important starting point. So Solutions Journalism Network, for those who aren't familiar, essentially partner with uh, news outlets across the country and the globe now, I believe, mm-hmm. to help reporters make a transition where they're actually introducing a problem through a solution that a local change maker or a global change maker is actually implementing. So from the moment that a young person hears about something that's happening, they're hearing about it through the lens of someone who is actively working to create change. Um, and so I think that's that's one big piece is kind of at the first mm-hmm. part of that process so that <clears throat> you're creating a lens that's asset-based and a culture of abundance when you think about change making right out of the gate. And so I think that's, that's kind of a, a key piece of it. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing about the process that we walk students through is is you know we have a very particular focus on empathy. So rather than sort of a, an analysis that's kind of, here's the problem, here are the elements of said problem, brainstorm solutions, students in our knowledge to action process spend a lot of time in the empathy um, stakeholder space with a lot of tools that allow them to collect stories from different um, from, from different spaces, right? From different areas of media, from reading. And so solutions journalism has actually been weaved into that process so that in, mm-hmm. the, in the process of learning about an issue they care about, um, and it's framed as an issue rather than a problem in our 
in our space. Um, it's 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 baked in so that there isn't sort of a, a you know a hairpin turn that has to be made once you've analyzed the breadth and depth of this yeah. enormous complex challenge and then have to make a transition because that's a really hard thing to do. So it throughout that process um, and our Kadeway process really bakes this in. The, the ability for young people to see multiple different perspectives on this, many of which are asset-based and many of which kind of open mm -hmm. up windows to think about the issue at hand through a totally different lens. Um, but I can't stress enough, this is why I love SGN. Um, you know, what David Bornstein, the founder, says, he thinks for every terrorist, there's a thousand you know, social entrepreneurs and change makers that are working to make the world better. And I think mm -hmm. that message does not necessarily filter, certainly to yeah. young people in schools, but generally, right, to the general yeah. public. We we hear like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's all of our media is designed to be sort of um, like engage in conflict and sort mm -hmm. of the what bleeds leads kind of thing. And so I think that's that's a really important way to think about not only how you begin the conversation, but then how you scaffold it for young people. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I totally um, buy into what you're saying that when people have an empathetic viewpoint that is the lens through which they look at a problem, that transition to being an asset focused, solution oriented, you know, uh, agent um, happens much more quickly. I, I think that's a that's very insightful. This is actually a good time to transition into what some people perceive to be a problem, which is artificial intelligence. So, right. so, so let's try to be asset based on this. Um, when, when, can you remember when you first learned about AI and, and thought that's no longer just an engineering puzzle? This is a thing that I have to deal with. What, you know, where were you? What were you doing? What were uh. your thoughts? Oh, that's a great question. The exact moment, I'm not sure. I would say for the last many years when I've been out speaking about future-facing education systems and global competence, I've actually been talking about AI and the the challenge and, and actually the opportunity to, because I've been concerned about bias in AI long before mm -hmm. generative AI and chat GPT and everything else that's emerged in the last many months. And so through that lens, I had been talking about it as an opportunity to really lean into sharpening critical thinking skills for young people, right? That mm -hmm. if you're living in a world awash with media and information, <clears throat> it becomes even more important that you are teaching the skills that allow them to discern, you know, form opinions based on evidence, that to develop and hone critical thinking skills, to look at multiple perspectives, to understand where sources come from, all of those kinds of things. So that I think that's been on my mind for uh, you know, two, three years, um, mm -hmm. just thinking about the the impact of that. And then of course, you know, draw, drawn into sharp contrast in the lead up to the 2020 election, because I think the stat is misinformation was clicked six times more often yeah. on Facebook than factual information, which, you know, had, had, I guess you could say predictable results in some ways. Um, so, but I think with respect to generative AI and this new wave of what Thomas Friedman would call the Promethean moment, like I think no one is no one is of the mind that this isn't going to change everything in profound ways and we're just trying mm -hmm. to figure out how. I think I was struck with this sense of trying to avoid um, slipping only into fear <laughs> and yeah. trying to be asset-based around, you know, this is another example, if we go back to how we think about global competence of how the world is changing in unpredictable ways, even by the admission of people designing generative AI, mm -hmm. you know, they're not even sure of its possibilities and limitations um, and, you know, and, and have spoken and reported and written about that extensively. So 
I, I you know, where I was, um, we actually had an event on this in the spring with Thomas Friedman to talk about kind of future of school, schools and future of work. And, and this was a central point about it. And I think what came out of it was, how can we focus on this as an opportunity to free us up for the things that um, are uniquely human that we can do mm -hmm. in schools that we need to do? Um, and when seen through that lens, look at the ways in which AI might be able to be harnessed to, to help us do that. Um, and then how do we set up learning environments that build a generation of critical thinkers that hold the next decades of technology development accountable, right, to the ethical and moral mm -hmm. uh, standards that we need to have an, an equitable society. I think that's those two things are a way to look at the opportunity to lean into this new era in schools, um, you know, to build, again, more global competence so students are ready to thrive after graduation. Yeah. I, uh, before I, I want to come back to this, but just a little bit more definitional uh, oriented question. Do you think that the algorithm, I think most listeners of this podcast and anybody that uses social media very much, they understand how algorithms fit into what they see on their Twitter or X, I guess now is what we should call it, or right. Facebook feeds. They understand the concept of algorithms. Do you think that the algorithms that people understand from social media is the same thing as what AI is, or is AI sort of a exponential leap beyond those algorithms? Is that, I, I hope that question makes sense. I Because I think people yeah. equate them sometimes, and I think they're very different. No, they're very different. I think, I mean, you know, AI has been controlling lots of parts of our lives um, behind the scenes for quite some time, right? It's the mm -hmm. way that Target knows, you know, when you get on Instagram, what you want to buy. It's the way, <laughs> yeah. you know, so, so, so many elements. And I think that people have sort of flexed that muscle in social media and, and have learned enough or seen enough to know, oh, this is why I see this particular group of friends, or this is why these are the, the posts that come up because I've clicked like and that that basic principle applies. I think, you know, everything about this next moment in generative AI is different. It's it's sort of the, it's by leaps and bounds. And I think we'll fundamentally change how we relate to not just information, but also um, sort of ha how we think. And, and again, I can't mm -hmm. stress enough how we lean into the things that are uniquely human. There are things like we know research tells us that building trusting, caring relationships in school is critical. That yeah. will always require um, educators. It will require school leaders. It will require people in schools that are creating an, uh, an environment of inclusion and belonging. And that matters. And they're not soft skills, right? It's, it's in, especially in the face of a Surgeon General report that says that isolation is a, you know, it's, a, it's an actual um, you know, we're having a crisis across the country around that. Um, mm -hmm. The ability to strengthen, connect with and strengthen community. Um, those are all things that I think are gonna be really important. And also I just, you know, the ethical implications of AI, most of which we haven't even wrapped our, our yeah. minds and our heads around, right? So what, how do you set up a learning environment knowing this is here to stay, okay? So students are now in, in K-12 learning environments where this is here to stay. It will not only shape their, their learning inside that system, but once they graduate. So how are they gonna be ethical stewards of technology development? How they're gonna sharpen that ability to discern fact from fiction? How are they gonna recognize and address bias? And how are they gonna do that in a way that pursues goals that help sustain 
life, equitable life on the planet, right? I mean, these mm -hmm. are huge questions that, you know, if you look at how you can set up learning in K-12, could actually be seen as an exciting challenge. Um, they're, they're big, thorny things. Um, and I think, um, you know, they can be they can be used in that way. Whereas other things like, uh, you know, one of the most fascinating uses of AI now, bias is something that we obviously struggle deeply with inside K-12 schools. I met with a new company that's actually using AI to help uh, educators when they're preparing for parent-teacher conferences or when they're communicating with parents eliminate bias from their language. Um, hmm. And it's it's really fascinating. Um, you know, so that you're in a, you know, you're in a parent-teacher conference and instead of saying, you know, Johnny is disruptive, he stomps around the room, um, he, you know, using language that we know is triggering and is often, um, often a product of racial bias, where mm -hmm. you could say something like, you know, Johnny sometimes needs redirection um, during English class. And, you know, I've tried this or this, I would love to partner with you on. So there's, there's, yeah. there's really interesting applications for educators mm -hmm. who quite frankly are expected to do all manner of, of things <laughs> yeah. in a class, right? Um, and that if, if leaned on and applied in the right way, that this opens up kind of more opportunity to do kind of just the, the magic of, you know, the ma what magic of teaching is and learning is. Mm -hmm. The the answer to this question changes on a daily basis, I think, because of all the AI models that, you know, are available and being released, you know, every single day. But at the conference that you hosted, one of the quotes that I saw from you suggested that another way that AI um could be beneficial in the classroom is that it could it could free up time for those more human um, things that you've already mentioned, being empathetic, developing a classroom culture of of, of uh, inclusivity, respect, et cetera. Um, how what are some of the things that right now you could envision AI doing for teachers that would allow for that time shift to happen where they could focus on the more human aspects of the classroom? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of possibility, I think, even just with what I've already mentioned. So AI that helps educators understand how um, how to detect bias in communication, mm -hmm. AI that might help in a classroom differentiate how you're supporting various students. So if you look at what Sal Khan is developing, and I've played around with it, the ability to, you know, you've got students at all different levels in a class in a particular area of math or science that allows students to self-pace and move through um, some learning in ways that suits where they are and, and that that classroom can be more differentiated in a way that's really positive for the learning experience and that educators can then use, you know, their uniquely human skill to bring students back together for discourse and engage debate and dialogue um, about the learning that they've gone through. Um, there's tons of possibility in online tutoring. We've already seen it in language development. Mm -hmm. um, those are all ways in which I think these things can be quite helpful. Um, and again, there, I don't want to, I don't want to undersell the fact that there's a lot of unknowns and that there's an equal, um, concern on the opposite end around how do you ensure that AI doesn't get so, you know, because this is working at a pace that it's, you know, exponentially greater than anything we can imagine. And so the inputs become very important. Mm -hmm. I think staying on top of what that bias looks like is critical, but those are all ways that we can free up the time and space for educators to be able to to support students um, in learning and to, from our perspective, to do the most important work, which is to build global competence. Yeah, I, I think that um, 
like with my with my colleagues, um, which inc- which also includes uh, K twelve colleagues in in the area. Um, everybody's talking about what are the tools. So, so the questions are more about what and. And yeah. I get that because it's so overwhelming right now that if you, you know, if you try to be methodical and saying, okay, what are some AI models that I could use with my students? I mean, that list, you know, immediately gets well, you know, into the hundreds, right? Right. If not thousands. <clears throat> I think that um, eventually we also need to start asking questions of where, because, you know, yeah. each of the each of the products that we look at is based upon a language model that somebody developed um, with data. And yeah. If you don't start yeah. asking questions about where it came yes. from, then you you miss out on potential biases that are part of a model that you would never understand. It's the same thing as algorithms 100%. being built. That yeah. So I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about how those of us that are are leaning into AI need to think about those ethical components and the questions that guide how we understand the ethics of using AI. Because right now we're just so overwhelmed, we haven't thought about those next level questions, and we need to. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think that's, I mean, this is the, the this big shift that we're talking around about around a K-12 system set up for sort of a standardized, mm-hmm. you know, here's the content you need to learn, memorize it, get tested on it, reproduce it, is so dramatically outdated when you think about the developments that you're describing, yeah. right? And, yeah. that, and that it requires almost this meta level of like, um, not just learning and discerning content, but questioning its you know its its origin, its genesis, where did it come from? How did it get up? I mean, that's the that's the next level of critical thinking that mm-hmm. generative AI brings to the to the forefront. And this is again why it's so so important for um, schools to sort of reimagine learning around these core competencies because core competencies to manage that will be much more important than technical knowledge. Do you think those core competencies start to intersect with what are already the core objectives of world savvy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that we talk a lot about this in you know internally that um, you know our core objectives as an organization is to create a K twelve system where global competence is embedded, and and at the same time we hold ourselves to a standard to continuously build our own global competence. We sort of want to do good well and. And so we think a lot about how this shows up um, for adults, for the way that we do our work, for how we set up our organization, for how we engage with our partners. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're a big believer in a bigger tent. We're operating, to be frank, in a really interesting landscape right now, one of hyperpolarization, one where there's a lot of states across the country now that are banning books, have anti-LGBTQ, you know, legislation, mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. anti-CRT. And so you've got, you know, we we are really leaning into this idea of um, in the world that we've just described, the, the ability to create uh, pathways and frameworks for schools to open up the aperture and expand the perspectives that students have access to, but also give them the tools to analyze and understand and make good decisions based on that rather than kind of narrowing it. So yeah, there's a very, very close connection between, um, you know, our objectives and 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 what that looks like. Well, Dana, it's been uh, great having this opportunity to talk with you, and I hope that um, as as you continue working with schools, if there are, you know, really great case studies um, of of any of the topics we've been talking about, that you would invite colleagues to come back on the show with us, because I think the work that that the world savvy is doing. Um, 
is so important and and you're thinking about it in complex ways not just with the idea of global literacy but also this discussion about ai and so i would welcome you back at any moment well thank you so much scott i would love to do that and there's many many of our partners across the country districts doing really great work and so we will stay in touch and and revisit the show absolutely yeah my guest today has been dana mortensen she's ceo of the education nonprofit world savvy um, we're very thankful to have her on the program uh, our audio engineer and associate producer is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. If you have ideas or comments, please reach out to us on our social media platforms. We would love to hear from you, and I, I really appreciate you listening to this episode and hope that all the listeners have a great day. Mm-hmm.